Welcome to the Do Life and A Body You Love podcast. I'm Nikki O'Day, and we are going to talk about any and every topic that will get you showing up bigger and bolder in your life. Weight loss, relationships, mindset, it's all on the table. It may not come out real PC, but if you're sick of motivational rah-rah talks that don't lead to any real change in your life, then you're in the right place. Let's jump into today's episode. Ladies, welcome to the Do Life in a Body You Love podcast. I have an amazing guest for you guys today, the brilliant Dr. Jade Tita. He is a metabolism wizard. And so who better to come speak with a bunch of busy chicks who are trying to lose weight, right? So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be fun. I love this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is your jam, right? So yeah. Um, when I read your book, Next Level Metabolism, which by the way, ladies, if you haven't got this book yet, you need it. I am blown away by not only the level that you understand this stuff, but how you can help women actually apply it. That's mm. the magic, right? So yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. That book, by the way. So I'll just say a couple things on that that book. It's a very different book. It's um I, I I don't know how you think about it, Nikki, but it, to me, it's it's uh, it's very much was designed for professionals. However, um, what I the most of the feedback I've been getting is just regular old people who've been reading this book who really want to understand the science. So it is very science heavy. It is not what I would consider a diet book, but I do think for those who are looking for a, a big you know sort of framework understanding of metabolism and some of the things they can do on their own, this is a great. A book to have, but just keep in mind for those of you who are going to get it, that it is um, not the easiest book in the world to read if you don't like science. Now, if you love science, hopefully it's going to be right up your alley. No, I would totally agree with that. So a lot of my clients happen to work in medicine because that's the field that I came from. And so I think that it does a nice job of bridging the gap between like, because hormones and metabolism is a crazy intense topic and we still don't even have it all figured out. Right. But you have a good way of like breaking it down to like, okay, here's what this actually means for you. Um, and there's an art to it too, right? Like here's the science, but then here's like, let's just dig in and try some things. Yeah. And I think you do a good job of expressing it in that book. So yes, for some people, I think they might be like, Oh, this is a bit much, but I actually think most people would be pretty into it. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're, if we kind of get into this thing now where a lot of people are taking, you know, really looking at taking responsibility for their own healthcare, there is a general distrust for medicine in general that I think is permeating culture right now. And I don't necessarily see that as, you know, an awful thing. Uh, it does present some challenges, though. It basically puts the onus back on the individual, which I think uh, most individuals outsourced their healthcare uh, to too to much of a degree previously. So I do think one of the reasons why I think you and I both do this work, right, is because ultimately we know that people are trying to kind of understand and taking a lot of the responsibility for healthcare on themselves. And so they do want to understand this stuff. And the other recognition is that a lot of physicians, you know, most of my work now is educating other physicians. And let's just face it, it's not because they uh, don't necessarily know. It's just that just like all of us, they are inundated with uh, things that keep them occupied. So for example, if you're in the OB-GYN field, that, that is you, that's a whole field in of itself that you have to kind of uh, understand and certain things that you have 
to do and insurance gets involved with that and everything else. And so not all doctors can keep up either. So it's really good when you're your own advocate. So that's kind of the thing that I think this book does and what I know you and I will get into in this, uh, you know, sort of in this discussion. But I would essentially say that the best of all worlds is somebody who comes in highly educated, understanding you know, sort of the context of metabolism in general, and then understanding where the sort of um, inputs come in. Like, what are you going to get from a health coach? What can a natural medicine provider give you? What will the physician do? And in a sense, you kind of need all those tools. And so I do think we have to be a little bit aware of right now, it used to be the conventional medicine was the bias. And now it's moved a little bit more to natural medicine is our bias when really, we have to take both and do what works uh, for us. So I think that's a big piece of what's going on here for sure that people need to and want to take responsibility for their own healthcare. And then to that end, I guess where I would start us off in this discussion is then if that's the case, where do we, we can go anywhere you want, Nikki, but the, I think the big, the big issue here is where do we start when we are so confused with all the information? And I think that is really the first, uh, you know, sort of question. And so I'm curious where you want to take this in terms of what your clientele and your listenership is most interested in. Because what I find most of the time is it's just people are mainly confused because they don't have a good organizing framework. And that is where I think we have to make sure we have a good organizing framework. Otherwise, we don't know where to put all these disparate pieces of information. No, I 100% agree. Like, especially when women are trying to lose weight. Um, and that's not the only thing that we talk about here, but that's, that's a big mm-hmm. focus. Yeah. And, you know, the women who are listening are typically busy working, raising kids, you know, they have a significant other, they're, they're playing many roles and then they're trying to throw weight loss in the mix too. And, you know, it's a noisy space. And sometimes yeah. the people screaming the loudest don't even have it. Right. Yeah, and 100%. it's like, where do I go? Where do I start? And mm-hmm. so where I think you've laid it out, like you need a good framework. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's start there then. So to me, um, the idea is uh, whenever something isn't working and let's first talk about that, the current model does not work. So let's talk about the current model. Let's talk about where it's potentially wrong and then where to go um, from there. The current model essentially goes, um, it's all about diet, what you're eating and exercise. And it doesn't really discuss much else. But the interesting thing to understand about the metabolism is that diet and exercise are but two inputs that the metabolism is measuring all the time. So yes, it's measuring what you're eating. Um, It's also measuring how much you're moving. It's also measuring how intense that movement is, how frequent that movement is. But more important than that, it's measuring. And I do think it is more important that it is measuring all the other forms of stress Uh, even stress that you perceive as stressful that might not be. So even the way you look at the world, it's measuring stress. So when you think about metabolism, you got to go, it is a sensing and responding apparatus. So what it's doing is looking out in the world and going, what's the temperature? What's the season? What's food availability? How much am I moving? What kind of emotional stress do I have? What other demands do I have? How am I sleeping? Um, What's going on with light exposure, temperature exposure, all of these things. So it's measuring all of that. Then it's looking inside the body and going, by the way, what do my cells need and what are my cells telling me? So there's this little area in the brain called the hypothalamus that is integrating all this, looking in the outside world, 
seeing what the stress is out there, looking in the inside world, seeing what is going on there, and then plotting a course to get back to balance. So that's the first thing to understand. So if you understand that, and then you start going, well, I'm just going to eat less and exercise more. That begins to put stress on this system in a way that you may not be anticipating because what the metabolism is doing is it's going, what is available for me out there and what is going on inside the body and how do I match that up? And so there's something that I call the calorie gap, which is the amount of energy you're taking in versus the amount you're expending. Now, what most people think is the larger that cap gets, that gap gets, the better off they are. And the truth of the matter is, if you understand metabolism as a stress measuring device, and you understand that gap between intake and output as stress, then the wider it gets, the more the metabolism is under stress, and the more it starts to institute a stress response. Now, what is that stress response? Well, it is hunger going up. It is cravings going up. It is energy becoming unstable and unpredictable. It is fragmented and difficult sleep. It is mood volatility. It is decreased uh, libido, uh, issues with menses. Uh, if you're a man, it's libido and erection. If you're a woman, it's libido and menses. It's um, exercise performance and exercise recovery. It is all of these things. And so what we ultimately need to understand is that we are inadvertently putting stress on our system using the old model. Eat less, exercise more. If it creates too much of a calorie gap, it creates stress. The metabolism is a stress sensing and responding apparatus and you throw it out of balance. And so step number one in this process of this framework, this new framework to understand is that the metabolism is not a calculator or chemistry set. It is more like a stress barometer and thermostat. So the first thing you need to understand is that diet and exercise, if done too little or too much, is a stress. And by the way, uh, I know you know this, Nikki, but here's what people can think about. Just think about you and your friends as you're listening to me talk right now. And isn't it funny that a couch potato, so your couch potato friends have what? hunger and craving issues. They're hungry all the time. They don't, mood's messed up. Energy is not great. But guess what? Also, dieters, chronic dieters have the exact same issues, hunger all the time, cravings, energy's messed up, sleep difficulty, et cetera. How do we know this? Well, both of these are a stress, right? So whether or not you are eating too little and exercising too much or exercising not at all and eating too much, both of those create a calorie gap and stress. And so that's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is, okay, if that's the case, then what I need to do is narrow this calorie gap down a little bit and take stress off the system and I'll get better results. And so the old model isn't working. The eat less, exercise more, taking to the extreme is no better really than the eat more, exercise less, taking to the extreme. And we need a different approach. Now, as it pertains to women, their female hormones get in on the action here, which makes them very different than men. There are true biological differences between the genders, right? Sure, there are cultural differences, but there are biological differences as well. These biological differences make women have what I would call a more sensitive and refined metabolism because they are the gender of childbearing. They're still primarily the gender of child rearing as well. And both of those can be pretty stressful. And so the female metabolism is a little bit more reactive than perhaps a male's metabolism to not hitting the Goldilocks zone with diet and exercise. So I'm going to kind of stop there, but hopefully I'll just repeat what I said, and then we can see where you want to go, Nikki. But ultimately, 
this is what I just said. The old model's wrong. Eating less and exercising more as your only tool is no better than the opposite. And we need a different model. That different model stops looking at uh, the metabolism as a calculator or chemistry set and starts to see it as a thermostat and stress barometer. Now, if that is the case, now we have to essentially say, okay, how do we uh, eat enough, but not too much? How do we exercise enough, but not too much? How do we get it just right? And how do we take into account our unique nature? And if you are a woman, then that is a big piece of your individual metabolism. Now you are different than any other woman, right? But a younger woman and a more mature woman are going to be different. And women and men are going to be different. And so the idea is first, let's understand the, the female differences between men. And then from there, you can begin to say, well, how am I different from every other woman? So there's three rules to remember right now, and then we'll move forward. Rule number one is the metabolism is adaptive and reactive. It doesn't stay static. Rule number two is you are an individual and you being a woman plays a big role in that. And then rule number three, which we can get into, is this idea that we must take into account other things besides diet and exercise that help the metabolism be less stressed. If you understand that, you're beginning to understand the bigger sort of framework in which to be viewing your fat loss journey. Yes, I love that whole concept of looking at your metabolism as a stress barometer mm. instead of because I think the eat less, move more thing, like you start off on that, maybe the scale's moving a little bit. And then as soon as you hit a plateau, what do people want to do? Okay, well, it was working. So mm. I must need less food or I must need to move more. And you fall into this like vicious cycle of that. Mm -hmm. By the time some women come to me, I'm like, how much less food are you going to eat, boo? Like you can't, <laughs> you can't keep going like this. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking at it like a barometer and something you can work with as well. So a lot of people, especially women, especially the older that we get, um, think, well, my, my metabolism is just broken. My metabolism doesn't work. It's broke. And it's like, well, no, nothing is broken. We, you got to work with it. Right. Yeah. And this whole concept of like working with your body instead of trying to strong arm your metabolism, yeah. like I got to do these tricks to speed up my metabolism. And it's like, mm -hmm. we know you don't need tricks for that. We just got to like, get all this in sync. Right. Yes. hundred percent. And actually it's, it's, um, it, it's really important. I think that, um, we begin to understand that, uh, that process of um, reading the metabolism. The metabolism doesn't speak English, right? It speaks metabolism. And so what happens is we never learn to speak that language. Now you just alluded to a key component of learning to speak the language, right? So when you hit a plateau and you try to exercise even more and eat even less, what that plateau means in the eat less exercise more model, it means you got to work harder, right? But if that's the wrong model, what that plateau means in the um, stress barometer model is it means you just pushed yourself into too much stress. So actually what you need to be doing is the exact opposite, which means probably taking a little bit of a break from metabolism or closing that calorie gap a little bit. So let me, let me kind of explain it uh, this way. So as you go along through your journey and you begin to eat less and exercise more, usually what will happen, let's just, let's just walk through this. All of us know what this is like, and we know it in our friends and our family. The first couple of days are kind of tough because we're trying to go against some ingrained habits, right? And so it's kind of tough and maybe our energy's off. And then if we stick it out for one or two days, we feel pretty good. 
all of a sudden we feel like a light bulb went on. We feel like, oh my God, it's good. My hunger is not there as much. My cravings are gone. And that will last for most people anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, right? And that's a good response. What that means is that your metabolism is not stressed, that it's using its fuels. It, it feels vital. The, the fact of the matter is, though, is that the metabolism is adaptive and reactive. And so what we think is that it's going to be linear and predictable and just be a linear straight line. That's not how it works. It's measuring and responding, measuring and response. Every day it goes, how much food, how much activity, how much stress, how much food, how much activity, how much stress. So it goes along. And let's say after seven days, right, you're feeling good. And then all of a sudden you start getting a little bit of craving or your hunger or you start to have difficulty sleeping at night. That is not an indication to do more. That is the exact wrong approach. That is an indication to realize the metabolism is now speaking to me. Biofeedback is the metabolism talking to you. It is the hormones talking to you. So sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, exercise, performance, exercise, recovery, libido, menses, uh, if you're a guy, erections, um, all of that kind of stuff. And signs and symptoms, headaches, joint pain, digestive disturbances are all telling you whether the metabolism is stressed or not. Now, if the metabolism is stressed, it's usually going to default back to its evolutionary stress. What were the things evolutionary speaking for metabolism that were most uh, trying for survival? Well, it was starvation. It was infection or injury. And so with all of those starvation, infection and injury, what is ultimately going to happen is the metabolism is going to say, okay, I need more fuel, more resources to deal with this injury, this infection, or the starvation response. And I also need to adjust maybe immune function up and maybe decrease function elsewhere. And so what ends up happening in this situation is that the metabolism goes, here's what I'm dealing with. And then you can feel that. If you have increased hunger, in, uh, energy, uh, unpredictable or low and cravings, this is saying that your metabolism is responding to an ancient starvation stress or the way it manages stress, whether infection, injury or starvation, it always manages stress the same way. So it institutes this software and goes, now you're more hungry. Now you have unpredictable energy. Now you're getting cravings. Now your sleep is fragmented. Now your mood is off. And as soon as that happens, you should not see it as the need to do more. You should see it as the need to do less or be smarter. So this to me means taking a diet break or perhaps moving into a different way of doing things. For example, if you're eating less and exercising more, maybe you can eat more and exercise more. That will narrow the calorie gap. Maybe you can eat less and exercise less. That will narrow the calorie gap. Probably what you don't want to do is try to eat more and exercise less, which is just going to the couch potato mile or doubling down on the eat less, exercise more approach. And so ultimately, you got three things to do when you feel that stress. Either take a break, which what I would call going into an isocaloric state, take a break, back off, go back to a normal diet or match energy output with intake, meaning eat more and exercise more or do it the other way exercise less and eat less as a result. And all of a sudden, that plateau will take care of itself. Now, by the way, for women, this also, unlike men, because uh, female hormones, especially in younger women, are fluctuating throughout the month, those hormones are going to impact what your metabolism is saying. You know, for example, estrogen makes you more insulin sensitive. 
So when estrogen is around, you're more likely to not have hunger and cravings. You're more likely to have more stable energy. You're more likely to be more focused, have better self-esteem and be a little bit better to handle the stresses of life. When estrogen is not around, that kind of changes a little bit. And so taking that into account begins to help you understand um, sort of how to manage this. So I'll just repeat what I said, because a lot of this is complicated. And I know sometimes when I talk, people can get lost. Just remember this, the metabolism does not speak English. It speaks metabolism. So you're going to need to know how to speak its language. When sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, these things go out of check. It's an acronym I use, S-H-M-E-C, SHMEC. When SHMEC goes out of check, it's an indication your metabolism is under stress. So that's number two. And number three, when you see that your metabolism is under stress, you don't double down on the thing that was causing it stress. You back off and correct that. You either take a diet break or you more closely match food intake and output. And I know we'll get into this, Nikki, but there's a whole other approach here where it's like it's sometimes it's not just about diet and exercise. Sometimes you just need to do things to relax you, spa time, creative pursuits, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so once you start seeing metabolism as a stress barometer rather than a calculator, now you have new tools that are more effective to use. Yes, that's so important. We're always doing what I call stress audits in my program. Like, okay, well, what are all these stressors and how are we handling it? And even in the day-to-day, like maybe the scale's not stuck, but I'll just give the listeners a, for instance, me personally today, I'm fried. I just started a new workout routine a few days ago. I have a very sensitive system because of some autoimmune stuff that's going on with me. And so I felt wonderful yesterday, got up today. I'm tired and I just have brain fog. Like I'm just not sharp today and I'm a nerd. So of course I look at like my aura ring and my HRVs down and all this crap. And today's supposed to be a heavy lifting day. And I'm like, Nope, it's a go for a walk day. So it's like, don't be rigid in your, your plan. Don't use it as an excuse to just be lazy and be like, well, I don't feel like doing things. But like, if your body is speaking to you guys, give it what it wants instead of what's on the calendar. Right. (laughs) Yeah. that's That's so well said. And um, I do the same thing, by the way. And, and, you know, I'll give you an example from my world just so that can they can kind of get that lesson. But so for me, I, I usually have my workout schedule, you know, sort of planned out. Um, I, I break it down into a green, yellow, red day. So a green day is like, I feel good. Uh, and my HRV and some of these other measures, which, by the way, you don't need to necessarily. But when I say I feel good, my schmeck is in check. Right. And I'm ready to go. Got good mood, good energy. So I go to the gym. And once I get there, I'm like, okay, everything's been good. I haven't gone hard for a while, so I'm going to go all out. This is a green day. Now, most of the time when I go, I feel relatively normal, right? And I'm just like, so I call that a yellow day. I go into the gym and I scale back just slightly. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it like I want to get through the week. I want to get through the month. I want to get through the year. I don't want to just go crazy with exercise. So I just show up and yellow to me means just show up and adjust the workout as needed. You don't always need to go hard. And then I have red days that are sometimes scheduled off days or sometimes days like Nikki says, where I just wake up and I'm like, I don't feel great today. Schmeck is out of check. Maybe some of the other objective measures are like, like HRV and things like that are also low. And I'm like, I'm taking the day off. And a day off to me means, you know, maybe a nap, uh, maybe more sauna therapy, maybe uh, just walking, uh, maybe just sitting on a couch watching TV, you know, um, or reading a book. And I think a lot of people don't understand that this is how the metabolism 
really functions. And when you do stuff like this, you end up in a position where now you can be consistent over the long run. Um, I think the mistake that people make is they do this all or nothing type of thing where they go, no, I'm just keep pushing, 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 pushing. Then they get so stressed out that they get so much hunger and cravings. Now they're having a burger binge or a pizza binge or something like that. And that is a very different thing. So it's basically like regulating things a little bit. So you don't end up doing these wild swings. I would argue that most people are still doing these wild swings. They're either on and then they're off. 90% of the people um, that I worked with in clinic, and I'm not so much in the clinic anymore, I'm doing education, but 90% of the, the people, other doctors that I work with, and they're bringing cases to me, what they're essentially saying is this is the case, I can't keep this person on this program, or the person saying I can't stay on this program. Part of the reason why is because that program is not d- doing a good job to manage stress. And that person is not realizing that the metabolism is a stress barometer, and you cannot overstress it. You cannot be overexercising and undereating or the opposite, overeating and underexercising and expect your metabolism to uh, you know, work with you. So that is, that is the, a big piece of it. Now, I know what most people hear, they go, well, that means there's a lot of trial and error involved then, right? And yes, in a sense, there absolutely is. And there's really no way of getting around it. However, there are tools that you can use. Like Nikki and I just taught you one if you understand what your metabolism is saying to you subjectively, right, with sleep, hunger, mood, energies and cravings and things like that, and you simply respond to your metabolism rather than trying to get your metabolism to respond to you, you're going to start winning more battles now. You're going to be less likely to go into these, this stress, uh, these stress-seeking behaviors. Now, there are things that happen in, in our lives that will change this. Uh, And one of the things that oftentimes comes up with women is menses can change this, right? So there's different times of the month with different hormones that impact your ability to handle stress. So as you come to the end of your cycle, if you're a currently menstruating woman, a younger woman who's got normal menses, as you come to the end end of your cycle, this becomes a more difficult time for most women, not all, to maintain uh, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and craving. So the same program that you're using in the first half of your menstrual cycle could be overstressing you in the second half of your menstrual cycle. Just like the same program you did when you were a younger woman may be too stressful for the female metabolism when you're a more mature woman going through perimenopause or menopause. And so you see how this new understanding of metabolism allows you to start figuring out some things that were before were confusing for you because before you might've been like, why this worked before? Why isn't it working now? Now you can go, oh, I know why it's not working now because it is causing stress, whether I feel emotionally stressed or not. And let's just talk about that just briefly, Nikki. So most people think that you're not stressed if you don't have emotional upset. Stress is not, a, to the, stress to the metabolism is not emotional upset. The example I, I like to use is a new mom, right? That is an extremely stressed out physiology. Nine months supporting another baby, uh, now uh, are supporting the baby, giving resources of your own body to that baby. Uh, Once that baby is born, it might be a lifelong dream, but you're in a whole different reality now in terms of you're no longer taking care of yourself. You've got something else attached to you. It's a, a life, no matter how much you prepare for it, I've heard you simply cannot prepare for it. And so that is a very sleep deprived, all of that. That's a stressed out physiology. Now, you might be happy in the head, but the body is stressed and you should be able to now decipher some of this stress rather than just looking at it from the standpoint of like, I'm not stressed. I'm not emotionally upset. 
That has nothing to do with the way the metabolism looks at stress. If sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings are off, your metabolism is under stress and emotions have nothing uh, to do with that. Uh, I won't say it has nothing to do with that. Oftentimes your mood you know, changes in regards to that, but you don't have to have mood changes to have a stressed out metabolism, if that makes sense. And then you yes. can start picking up patterns. When am I most stress sensitive? When am I most stress resilient? And you can start building a lifestyle around that. And really this is the only way to do it. You can't outsource it to me. Um, you can't outsource it to anyone really. The, the, the result, you know, some of the things that Nikki and I can help you all with is that we've worked with a lot of people. And so we've seen a lot more patterns than you have. And so we can give you some clues and some hints more like a coach rather than a director, you know, so we can coach you along the way and say, try this, try that. I've seen this before, you know, and we have perhaps a better understanding of metabolism than you for now, but in the end, you can't outsource completely this. You have to be in touch with your body. Oh, 100%. And I think that actually confuses people when they're first coming to me to ask me about my program. They're like, well, what am I going to eat? And I'm like, I don't know yet. Mm. Well, how am I going to work out? I'm like, I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to ask you questions and help you decipher what your body is trying to tell us. And I'm going to give you an educated guess at what it might be saying. And we're going to try it. We're going to see how it goes. hundred percent. And it's crazy because women in theory, they love this approach where I'm like, listen, this isn't going to be like all in aggressive boot camp style work. It's we're going to ease into it. It's going to fit your schedule because it has to, it's going to fit what your family will actually eat because you don't have time to make 25 meals. And they're all like, yes, great. Fantastic. And then three weeks in, they're like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And I'm like, are you getting the results you want? Yeah. Oh, you think it's got to be painful to produce a result. And you say you don't want that, but we're so ingrained in that, like no pain, no gain mentality that even if we say we don't want to be aggressive, We just can't help ourselves sometimes, especially for busy moms with the exercise thing that you're talking about. It's like, I don't got to do brutal workouts. Great. But then a lot of women feel like if they didn't feel like they were going to vomit at the end of the workout and they're not dripping in sweat, that it was like a waste of their time. Yeah. So it's a lot to like shift out of that old diet brain, I think. Yeah. And, and to realize that I I get it. And I know you do too, Nikki. and, And for all of you listening, I get it. Like we, Exercise is a way that probably all of us, a lot of people anyway, I certainly do, manage stress. And it's great for that. It just can become a stress in its own right if overdone. Too long, too intense, too frequent. And so, again, it's about understanding that and understanding that, you know, um, you have to regulate that. And there are other things that are every bit as powerful. Walking, slow walking, not, not, you know, fast power walking. Yin type yoga, Tai Chi, meditation, sauna therapies. There are a lot of different things that you will love just as much that you will see, depending on you, are highly, uh, you know, stress uh, balancing, uh, hormonal balancing. And it it needs to just be expanding the repertoire. It's not that you don't have get to exercise anymore. It's to understand there are other things that are that may be uh, better to reduce the stress and that doing that too much is going to cause Stress. So I'll give you sort of uh, my rundown on how to do this, because I know sometimes this can get theoretical and not everyone wants to listen to the science. I mean, Nikki and I can nerd out on that, but I don't know about all of you. But here's let's just break it down to make it a little bit more tangible for everybody now in terms of what this might look like. So from my perspective, um, and it sounds like Nikki's exactly the same as me, but here's how I would do it. If you came to see me and you were like, Jade, I want help with losing weight, I would essentially 
question you just the way Nikki does and find out if there's anything that you naturally gravitate towards. For example, maybe you naturally gravitate towards the paleo diet or the keto diet or intermittent fasting or veganism and vegetarianism or whatever it is, right? And if there's something you gravitate towards, then I'm going to say, perfect. That's good. We'll start there. Now, from there, I will educate you and say, you may like it. You may think it's best. You may have a bias towards this particular lifestyle. Your metabolism may or may not like it. And so we're going to basically start this approach. You can follow whatever program you want. And then we're going to see what happens to sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Schmeck. Is it in check or is it out of check? In other words, are we stressing out your metabolism or not? Second, are you losing weight? Third, and this would be maybe quarterly, what's going on with your vitals, blood pressure, laboratory measures, things like HRV, if you measure those kinds of things. And then we're going to say, well, if Schmeck is in check, if you are attaining or maintaining optimal body composition and things like HRV and your blood labs and blood pressure and blood sugars and all of those are optimizing, then I don't care what you're eating. I don't care if you're eating Oreos and chocolate milk every day. Now, for most people, probably no one, that diet's not going to give you the effects that you want. But the fact remains, everyone's going to be a little bit different in that. So that's how that would work. And so what would happen is, let's say you start with the, uh, the keto diet, and then you realize that, oh, fat is not working for me. And by the time you get done working with someone like me, you're now doing something like a keto diet plus, let's say, um, more primal, where it's lots of salads, but lots of oils and things like that, too, and a small amount of protein and a little bit of starch. Or maybe we figure out that none of that worked. And now we've moved you over to a very high fiber, lower fat diet because of some of the things that happen on that high fat diet. And slowly but surely, and this takes time, three months, six months, up to a year of this, perhaps, where we finally get the product or program that will work for you. Now, if you don't have any natural proclivity of where to start, I would essentially start you with what I have found has works the best for most people. Now, when I say the best for most people, everyone's so different. So it's like maybe 40% of the time, 30% of the time, this works off the shelf. That's not a very good percent. And that's because we're all so different. But I would essentially start you with what I call the 5S diet, soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries primarily low starch, low fat soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. And not because there's anything wrong with fat or starch. It's just that I want to start you with a high fiber, moderate protein diet, and then add starch and fat in slowly to see how you uh, relate to those. And then we do the same thing. Does that keep your schmeck in check? Are you losing body composition? Or are you optimizing body composition? And are your vitals good? And we keep tweaking that until you get there. Now, the interesting thing about that is that that is just the diet piece. The exercise piece, I usually leave static. You really should only need to exercise about three times per week. And if your diet is correct, you should be able to lose fat, no problem. That's what people don't understand. If you are over-exercising and not getting results, then that exercise is doing you no favors. And so that's another thing I look at. I basically go, are they exercising like crazy and having to exercise daily just to maintain their weight. And if they stop exercising, they gain weight. For me, exercise stays the same. And then the other piece to this is I basically say, all right, what kind of things can I put on board that will control hunger and cravings and balance out stress even more? This is going to be things like walking. This is going to be things like sauna therapies, spa time, manicures, pedicures, facials, massage, uh, 
creative pursuits, anything that lowers stress. And then we're going to tweak and adjust based on those parameters, schmeck and check, body composition, vitals. And once you get there, here's the sad thing about it. <laughs> sad thing or not so sad thing. It doesn't stay that way. The metabolism changes. And But the beautiful thing about this is that when you learn this process, you never actually have to diet again because you don't need to go find another program. You just need to rework the process. And so it's very elegant in that way. And by the way, it may sound like a pain in the ass, but after about three weeks, four weeks or so, especially when you got a coach like Nikki helping you along, this will become pretty easy. You'll know, schmeck and check, body composition this. Okay, I got to make this little change. It'll become very, very intuitive. Then pretty soon you realize, you look back three years ago and you go, I can't remember that. I remember that time I was chasing all these diets and following every new program. And now it's just effortless. And any little change, I just tweak a little bit because you understand the process intuitively. And this is how it works uh, for most people. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it means it is far better than what most people have been doing. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Nikki, or anything you feel like I missed. And then where do you, where do you want to go from there? But that's kind of how I see it. I have nothing to add to that. That was perfection. So it's not easy. Like you said, it's kind of like more thinking, but the food's actually more enjoyable mm. usually than like a diet. Right. Yeah. So you're putting more thought into it. And if you have a coach that's helping you, that's helpful, but you're still going to have these bad days. Like I tell people before they sign up with me, I'm like, it's not going to be all puppies and rainbows. You're going to have days where you're going to hate my guts. And then you're going to get past it. And it's like a light switch. Like somebody will be struggling for weeks on end. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, I feel great. I totally get it. And I could eat this way for the rest of my life. It all makes sense. And I'm like, who are you? That's not where you were five days ago. But it's like, once you get it, you just have it and you have it forever. Like you said, that's the nice thing is that nobody can take this away from you. You don't have to go chase a different diet or a different pill or, you know, whatever things we are always looking for a quick fix. It's not a quick fix, but it's like the only real fix, right? Like you just got to do the work and figure it out. Yeah. And there are some things that people like Nikki and I can teach you all. Like, for example, um, we know. And by the way, there's there's every time you hear something from a coach like me or Nikki, understand that this is based off clinical experience. So we've worked with a lot of different people. It's also based off research a lot of time, but it still has to be filtered through your unique physiology, psychology, preferences and practical circumstances. So from my perspective, as you begin this process, you might go, all right, uh, what about hunger? How do I control that? Now, Nikki and I can give you some general tools here. We know through research and I know from working with thousands, tens of thousands, and, and you know, even more than that, when you think about the online programs, uh, protein, fiber, and water, research-wise and clinical-wise, these things are best to help with hunger. We also can educate you and say, what is hunger? It's felt in the gut. It is not in the head. Hunger is in the gut. It feels like an empty gnawing sensation. That's hunger. Protein, fiber, and water help with that. Cravings is in the head, right? This is boredom eating. This is habitual eating. This is the, the need for the taste for something. What helps with that is lowering stress. Guess what? Protein also helps with that. Enough but not too much salt and fat and carbohydrates will help with that. And this is where it kind of gets tricky, right? Because too much salt, fat, and carbs and sugar can send your brain wanting way more of those foods. Enough along with plenty of fiber and protein for the vast majority of people gives them that satisfaction as well. And this is what you end up working with, with someone like Nikki or myself, right? You end up being in this position where you're like, oh, 
hunger is not an issue for me. Oh, but cravings are. Oh, so I need to, you know, like, for example, I've had clients who just giving them extra salt shuts down cravings, right? Now, this may or may not work for you, but to know that working with someone who's competent and understands sometimes we are craving salt in the same way, sometimes we're thirsty and we think uh, we're hungry. Now, this is going to vary from person to person. Also, what do we do with sleep? For some people, cutting out carbohydrates completely messes up their sleep. So we need to give a specific amount before bed, let's say. Um, the same thing goes with, should I do keto or intermittent fasting or some of these favorite, you know, sort of uh, in vogue things. It's like, well, if you can learn that what you eat at one meal or don't eat at one meal influences what you eat the rest of the day, then you'll start to understand, well, should I fast or not? Well, if you want to skip breakfast, you can know if it's working for you if at lunch and dinner you eat normally and sensibly and less than you normally would. You'll know that it's not working for you if you skip breakfast and then during lunch and dinner, you're going on burger and pizza binges and things like that. And this is the process that begins to teach you about your body. Now, we can give you some things, protein, fiber, water, you know, uh, making sure you get your salt, starch and fat ratios correct for cravings. And then it's sort of like more like, did it work for you? If it makes you eat better and less later, then it's working for you. And there's all kinds of ways to begin um, to adjust that. But you are going to need to learn at least the big ones, what helps with hunger, what helps with cravings. For most people, protein, fiber, and water is going to be your hunger uh, piece. Lowering stress and getting the salt, carbohydrate, fat, and sugar ratios enough, but not too much is what's going to help you get there. And I would say, and and Nikki alluded to this, but if you're going to make changes uh, in your lifestyle, you want to make sure you it's as easy or preferably easier than what you were doing before, or it's as enjoyable or preferably more enjoyable than what you were doing before. Otherwise, it's not going to last. And so this is where we get into practical circumstances and personal preferences which are every bit as important as physiology and psychology. And that's, again, a piece of this. So it sounds complicated, but it really is not when you start realizing it's just a process that you can learn like any other process. And it only sounds uh, complicated now, perhaps, because you've never worked the process. But once you start, each time through, it gets easier and easier before you are now the metabolic master. And then you're helping all your friends and family figure this out as well. But what does not work is the old model. And it's not going to work just because you keep trying harder. So either you're going to get on board and get on and, you know, do what, how your metabolism works, or you're going to keep trying to do it. You're, you know, banging your head against the wall. That's never going to work. Or the next time the same exact diet comes out and it's rebranded. Because 100%. Cause you know, that's coming, you know, it's yeah. going to be called something else. The keto diet goes to the snakeskin diet, which goes to the, you know, that, you know, it's like even before Atkins, you know, the keto diet was a thing and it can be all these things can be effective as a as a part of a lifestyle um, and understanding when to use them and when not to use them. But all of them also can make you crash and burn based on your individual nature. And so you have to figure that out. And I do think that uh, this is I don't, it's a fun discussion for me. Uh, talking to women, because I do think the female physiology has some very pertinent things that um, 
if you understand, you can do uh, really cool things with. For, for example, estrogen and progesterone. I'll just go through this really quickly. If you understand these hormones and what they're doing, you can do a lot uh, for your physiology because they influence sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Uh, for example, during perimenopause, when progesterone starts to fall, what ends up happening is estrogen becomes pretty volatile. Well, estrogen controls things like dopamine and serotonin, which uh, deal with focus and motivation and uh, self-esteem, uh, respectively. Now, obviously, at that point in time, if you understand what's happening there, you can do other things to balance that out. For example, uh, cocoa powder is one of my favorite things to do because it has anandamide in it, which acts like GABA, a relaxing brain chemical. It also has phenylethylamine. It works, looks like dopamine and acts like dopamine in the brain. And it has serotonin in it. And so using that, it's really interesting, right? Maybe that's why there's such an association for many women with chocolate and menses and perimenopause, but chocolate has a lot of calories and sugar in there. It's a little too much. If you just use the cocoa powder, perhaps that makes a difference. Or you could use something like Vitex, which is a female-specific adaptogen that helps the hypothalamus manage stress a little bit better. But you never would understand those interventions without understanding some of what's going on with the female physiology. So yes, it is sort of a trial and error type of thing, but it also is directly guided by real science that can... Uh, that can help you. And I can go through some of those things if you want, Nikki, I know you talk about this stuff as well, but I don't know if you want to cover those things directly or, or not. But, it, but my point with that is, is that uh, in the end, you have to listen to your body and not get bogged down by mechanisms. But if you understand some of these mechanisms, you'll understand some interventions uh, to make. And you'll even be able to say that new supplement or product might work for me or may not, because I understand estrogen and progesterone, what they're doing in my brain and whether this is going to make a difference for me or not. Yeah, I totally want to touch on a couple of these things. Okay. So the cocoa powder thing, I had never heard until I read your book. Mm. I think that's where I read it. Yeah, it was in your book. And mm. so I had some clients who were struggling with cravings around that time. And I've always just been like, you get the low carb, dark chocolate, you have a couple bites after dinner, mm. you're okay. But the, a couple of them were really struggling. We tried the cocoa powder, boom, works. Mm. Like nice. It's crazy. Yeah. And I thought somewhere along the way, I heard you say that the cocoa powder is even better than chocolate because of the way it's processed. It has more of those amino acids or whatever there is in there. Yeah. And you know, this is some of this is hypothetical. So um cacao, many people, you know, like many people are, are on board with cacao. I'll break it down real quick in case you don't know. But the the cocoa bean itself, right? They basically remove that bean, they separate it from the fat, which is the cocoa butter. And then there's basically this little seed or pod and they take that pod and then they roast it and uh, pulverize it. That would be cocoa powder. Now, if they don't roast it and sort of break it into pieces, that's cacao. It's sort of the raw pod without being cooked. Now, with many foods, tomatoes, another example of this, the more you cook tomato and the more you process it and cook it, the more the bioactive compounds come out. Same with coffee, by the way, the more you roast it, certain compounds are degraded and other compounds are increased. For example, uh, chlorogenic acid in coffee is decreased the more you roast it, but phenylindanes, which are great for the brain, are increased as you roast it. In general, there so is- So get rid of um, light roast, is that what you're saying? Um, you, you probably, in, it, you know, when you're talking about that, you probably want a medium roast. So you get enough chlorogenic acid and enough phenylindanes. But the, the whole point of going through that is that, yes, these sort of things matter. But in general, 
with these foods, when you're trying to get bioactives out of something, usually, and this is just a guess, we would need studies to do this. Usually the more easily it is to digest cooking helps that helps you get that. And then pulverizing it helps you get it. So my guess is that cocoa, which is the roasted pulverized into that powder is going to give you a better ability to get those bioactive compounds. Um, that's a guess. Um, it's also an educated guess because almost every study on cocoa, and there are lots of them, and they show really positive effects are on regular old cocoa powder. There are very few, if any studies that I'm aware of that have looked at cacao. And so the natural medicine folks will be like, oh, cacao is better automatically. And what I'm saying is you don't need to get so esoteric and you may even be better just by getting a good quality organic cocoa powder, the same thing you bake cakes with, putting it into um, water and you pour the water on top slowly and stir and drinking that like coffee. Now, a um, couple things here with, uh, with these kinds of tricks. That is the way to do it, the, just the bitter compound. Now, not everyone's going to like that, right? So they're going to ask some milk and maybe some stevia or something like that. And that is absolutely fine. However, just remember what we're talking about here is we're talking about cocoa powder in water. And then as you adjust it, you want to know how that affects you. Some people, the very literal taste of sweet or creamy in their mouth makes them crave more sweet and creamy. Other people, it doesn't. Bitter compounds for a lot of people suppress hunger. That's one of the reasons why a lot of people use coffee. Uh, it also bitter compounds increase peristalsis. That's why a lot of people use coffee to go to the bathroom, right? As soon as you begin to change those things, then you begin to change a little bit about what's happening in your physiology. So just remember that, that there is a fine line between, uh, you know, doing something and then adjusting it to your personal preferences. And that's what you should do. So you should add you should add the sweetener and you should add the, the milk if you like it. But then you have to go back and ask your metabolism, did that actually work, right? Because you may not like cocoa powder. It may do what we want it to do, but you may not enjoy it. Then you may add a little stevia and milk and then it does no longer works. But then maybe if you just put a tiny bit of sweetener in there and a little less milk, then it, it works and you enjoy it. And this, again, is the process that we're uh, working towards. And I would say this is a very good uh, approach uh, for women who are having mood-related issues that then translate over into craving-related issues. Cravings and mood are very closely linked. Some of the same brain chemicals that are involved in this uh, are probably overlapping a little bit. It's difficult to tease out cravings in the research because sometimes we don't know, is, it, is this a habit? Is this uh, brain chemistry is this, you know, what, what is going on? Uh, but hopefully now you understand hunger is in the gut. Cravings are in the head. Hunger is about satiety. Cravings are about uh, satisfaction. And so the whole point here is, is that you still must like what you were doing. So when you hear somebody like me say cocoa powder or Nikki say cocoa powder also go, okay, do I like that? Do I not like that? Can I make it fit my uh, you know, sort of likes and dislikes while still getting the results. And we each have to go through this process anytime you hear uh, something new. It's best for women with PMDD, uh, you know, premenstrual uh, dysphoric disorder. It basically means like, you know, where your mood goes crazy around menses. And if you are that kind of person, then when you get to perimenopause, you're probably going to be dealing with the same thing. Cocoa is wonderful uh, for that, but I'll stop.
just well, do you recommend that people who have like pretty bad PMS type symptoms, do they take the cocoa powder all month long or do they just need it in that week where they're feeling a little emotional, labile or? Yeah, I would say, I would say more, you could take it all month long, but I would say more during that week. Okay. Right? It's and the not one something downside, that has to like build way, up. Yeah, exactly. The one downside to that uh, trick is if you're, uh, if you're sensitive to uh, theobromine and things like that, some of that can cause uh, headaches. And so again, not everybody, but cocoa can cause headaches in some people. So that's where the individual uh, physiology uh, comes in. So there are, other, there are other things that you can do, but cocoa powder seems to be pretty amazing. One other really great one for women in general uh, who are dealing with hormonal related mood uh, and craving issues is Vitex, Vitex uh, Chaseberry, which is uh, a, it helps the hypothalamus hear progesterone better. And it has sort of a balancing effect, uh, in brain physiology in women. I've had fantastic success with that. So these are all kind of things you can begin to look at, but first and foremost, you need to get the lifestyle stuff in place. You need to make sure that you're not eating less and exercising more, that you're eating enough, but not too much exercising enough, but not too much having stress reduction in place, understanding how to read the signs and symptoms of the metabolism. Now, you know, Schmeck is a way to do that. And you know that if Schmeck goes out of check, you're under stress. And you know, if it stays in check, that you are not under stress. Now you're in a position of strength to begin adjusting uh, calories and all these other things, or throwing in cocoa or not, or using Vitex or not. The problem is most people hear these things and they're just like, oh, I'll do that. And they don't get the results because it's not put in context of what they need to be doing uh, with their metabolism, if that makes sense. No, um, it makes total sense. And I like to do things, not the lifestyle stuff, go ahead and jump in. But like, if I'm going to add an intervention, we're going to do cocoa powder, we're going to try Vitex, whatever the thing is, I personally like to do them one at a time, just so I can see what, what's the effect that I'm getting here. So you guys, if you're going to try something and it's my thing is if we have a good educated guess that this might work and it's not going to hurt you, try it and see see how it goes and then yeah. reevaluate though. Don't just keep like, I'm going to take 25 different things all at once and see what happens because yeah. so-and-so said it was going to be magical. Like, no. Yeah. The all or nothing thing is really, is really just, you know, it's like to me, if I had to say what's getting in most people's way is they think they have to work, they take the harder uh, approach rather than a smarter approach. What Nikki and I are talking about right here is the uh, sort of the, the smarter approach. And they also want to lean on more esoteric things, which are, are not a problem. And by that, I mean like new supplements or this and that. None of that's a problem, but it is going to be a problem if you don't have the lifestyle stuff in effect. An example would be, because one of the things I definitely would be remiss if we didn't discuss since we're talking to women is a bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, which is very different than hormone replacement therapy, that it's not bioidentical, right? And so um, one of the things that happens here is a lot of women would go, okay, well, my hormones are out of balance. Now, to me, when I think of hormones out of balance, the last ones I'm thinking about are estrogen and progesterone. I'm more first thinking insulin, cortisol, and the incretins that control hunger and stuff like that. Now, estrogen and progesterone do control those, but just putting estrogen and or progesterone into the system, oftentimes it's not going to give you the effects you want anyway, without the lifestyle stuff in place. So what you do is you get the lifestyle stuff in place, the exercise enough, but not too much, eat enough, but not too much. Then you begin to measure Schmeck and all that kind of stuff and make adjustments. At the end of the day, then you begin to add in uh, some of these, uh, you know, um, hormone replacement 
uh, types of things. And, you know, I'm one of these people who I'm agnostic with all this stuff. It's really what works. I would say, though, that you're at least if you're going to be doing hormone replacement, try to do the, the bioidentical stuff because your body can recognize that. And um, some of the more traditional stuff will still work, by the way. I'm not saying don't do that. Just saying you, you'll have a better uh, effect if you put uh, hormones that your body recognizes and that are not more pharmaceutical like, in my opinion. However, having said that, I've seen plenty of women do traditional HRT and do really well with it if their uh, lifestyle is, uh, you know, sort of taken care of. So that is the big uh, piece here. But I can give you some just general rules from my uh, clinical experience here that, uh, you know, for especially women. Um, well, let's just go through real quick, Nikki. I'll go through this real quick because I think it'll be useful. If for a normal, normally menstruating woman who wants to be looking after their hormones, realize that the big hormones that you're really need to be uh, concerned about if you want body composition changes, hunger and craving hormones. Understand that estrogen is going to be more balancing for hunger and cravings and progesterone less so. So what that means is post ovulation leading up to menses, you probably are going to need a strategy there to deal with hunger, energy and cravings. You know, um, Nikki will have some of her recommendations. Some of mine are increased protein and fiber around that time and cocoa powder and maybe some Vitex around that time, especially if you're dealing with, you know, other premenstrual symptoms like uh, breast tenderness, uh, lots of cramping, heavy bleeds and stuff like that. So to me, that's for that a particular woman who's menstruating. It's just basically looking and saying, what can I do at different menstrual cycles? Now, for women going through pregnancy, um, this is a really good time hormonally. You're, it's a time when you're progesterone dominant for a long period of time, which means that uh, the body progesterone is really interesting. because Progesterone is, is basically trying to save resources for the baby. So it makes you a little more insulin resistant, which makes sense. It goes, I want a little more blood sugar and a little more triglycerides for this baby. And it will keep you in that state until you wean off breastfeeding. So a couple things there is let Schmeck guide you. Don't eat for two people like your doctor says. Just eat to keep sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings in check. And also realize the longer you breastfeed, the better for your metabolism and the better for your baby's metabolism. But you may not lose weight until you completely wean off that baby because you're mainly in a progesterone dominant state, which makes you a little bit more insulin resistant. So that's that when that's pregnancy. Now, when you get into perimenopause and progesterone falls, this again is where you can start using things like a cocoa powder. This is where Vitex comes on or oral micronized progesterone therapy is wonderful for women during this time. And that's how I would look at it. Can my lifestyle do it? Can I do it with natural medicines like Vitex and stuff like that? Or maybe I'll do oral micronized progesterone bioidentical. At menopause, maybe you go in and you add estrogen to the progesterone now. Now, of course, we're assuming you're doing all these other things. And the final piece here is like, well, Jade, a lot of women ask me about what about testosterone for women? Testosterone is a really interesting one for women. It tends to, as women go through menopause and postmenopause, it tends to begin to dominate. They all fall. Estrogen falls, progesterone falls, testosterone falls, but testosterone doesn't always fall as much. And so you're in a more testosterone dominant state. However, Giving testosterone can make sense for some women because what's cool about testosterone is it can be made into estrogen for women. So you're getting a two for one there with so testosterone therapy becomes something that could be really useful as well. And it's specifically and especially for libido uh, type of issues. 
assuming you're doing all the other stuff Nikki and I said, that's a, a just a very quick precursor of like, you know, some of the hormonal therapies that you could use around estrogen and progesterone. And then the final thing I'd say that you want to be aware of as women with hormone stuff is thyroid becomes a big issue um, for women. They tend to have more thyroid issues. Uh, their uh, estrogen has an impact on thyroid where it increases thyroid binding globulins. And so uh, it, it can, when you add in hormones and, or you go through these hormonal stages, you oftentimes will see thyroid stuff pop up. So always make sure your doctor is looking after your thyroid, because I think one of the clinical pearls I can give you uh, at working with women is that oftentimes uh, the thyroid is involved anytime other female hormones are involved, especially the relationship between estrogen and thyroid function. So you want to make sure you rule out that as well and make sure your doctor is not just throwing HRT on board without looking at thyroid uh, function. I'm so glad that you threw this piece in here because I don't know that I would have thought to ask. Mm. And I think that there's, so it's weird because I'm like, I'm in the medical space, but I'm also in this like hippie woo space. And mm -hmm. so, and I think in this more natural, like let's live paleo space, mm. people stigmatize you wanting to take hormone replacement therapy. And yeah. like you're saying, there's a time and a place you still need to do your role and take care of your body. Yep but then sometimes you do need these things. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And also I'm going to need you to be my doctor when I go through menopause, because <laughs> that's all way over my head. Maybe and you and I will write the menopause, metabolic menopause book together. <laughs> People are going to oh, need it. I would need to learn a whole lot. I'm just going to let you write that and I'll just read it. Cool. Um, it, as far as like these fluctuations that women go through throughout their cycle and the way that your body can process carbohydrates differently, the way that you have stamina for exercises, the way that you recover. I understand all of that. And if anybody wants to nerd out about it, it's all in the book. Mm -hmm. But my question for you is how often do you see this play out where it's a pretty significant and obvious change or is it one of those things where most women probably don't notice unless you're pretty sensitive, like mm -hmm. What do you think in just from your own experience? Of yeah, I think most women? I think most women probably don't notice unless they're extra sensitive. In, in other words, it's one of these things that you can you can certainly do and you can certainly like train along with your menstrual cycle and do those kinds of things. And I think you'll get better results. I think this is what you're asking. Yes, it um, is. but but it's not necessary. In other words, women can train exactly like men and do all, you know, all that stuff and, and tend to get uh, really good results. However, I think once they become aware of what we're talking about. Um, and they start doing it, they will absolutely, I think, get better results in hindsight. However, I don't think, you know, like, for example, there's there's women listening to that right now or, or listen to some of my work and they go, well, I don't know, because I'm on, you know, I got the I, I got Marina, you know, I got the IUD. I don't you know, uh, or uh, I had a, um, you know, a um, hysterectomy or, you know, uh, I am on birth control. Like, so how do I know if I'm in you know, what phase of my menstrual cycle I'm in. And this is, these, this is such a great question because it does not, the you just want to look at the big, the big overarching theme is simply to understand how to read your metabolism first and also understand the metabolism doesn't seem to do well when you do the same thing day in and day out forever. So even those women who are not menstruating and having some of these hormonal fluctuations and don't know where they are in their cycle will still benefit from uh, training in a more cyclical way. In other words, training along with Schmeck would be, I would say, if you do that, it's even better than doing it along with your menstrual cycle, because it'll tell you 
uh, about your menstrual cycle anyway. So if you're not menstruating or you, you can't read your menstrual cycle, I, we already gave, Nikki and I already gave you the most important tool. Simply pay attention to Schmeck. Um, by the way, when I think of sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, I use that as a catch-all phrase for all biofeedback. And in women, menses is a huge one, um, obviously. So yes, use it if you have it. But ultimately, uh, all the other Schmeck parameters will tell you if you don't have it. You see what I mean? So from my perspective, um, you, don't, you don't need to, I know a lot of people get like, I can't do that, or I'm in menopause, or, you know, I don't know what my hormones are like. Or just you that have. it's, it's like confusing for somebody who's just starting. Right. 100%. And it's like, well, then just listen to your body yep. and train. Like, As a matter of fact, I would say it's not necessary for someone um, just starting. I just think it's something to be aware of. And it can give you, as you become more of what I call a metabolic detective as a woman, you should be paying attention to that stuff. Um, not that it's guiding your approach, right? It's not that it's, it's defining your approach. It's just helping you refine your approach. So you can, you don't need to be, you know, um, I think a lot of people go, oh, this is the thing. And it's just the way our minds work. They're like, I heard about this new way of training with your menstrual cycle, let's say. So I'm going to do that. And like, no, you're kind of missing the point again, right? It's just that the menstrual cycle is a key window into female metabolism. Now, if you don't have a menstrual cycle, that's cool. Men don't either. They're, men would do the same thing. It's just that men don't have the same, um, they go through two life stages. Women go through four or five. Men have one, you know, uh, hormone. A female has, uh, women have, you know, uh, two dominant sex steroids. And so there are some just major differences. So it's really just about using the tools necessary. And certainly a, a, the woman's stage of life hormonally and uh, uh, monthly state where her hormones are going to guide that. But it doesn't mean that that has to be the thing. And I think for most women, if you understand the first part of this conversation, you don't really need to understand it. You'll get results regardless, but slowly but surely you'll start to understand that if that makes sense. It's not something that comes first. It's something that guides the approach. Yeah. And for me, for the ladies listening, like I'm already listening to all my biofeedback for my clients, heck and schmeck, that's heels. That's what we talk about, right? Yeah. You're Perfect. listening to your body and you're making your adjustments. It's nice though, when somebody like you comes along and explains what we may feel in different parts of our cycle, because there are things I had already noticed about myself mm. and it's like, oh, I'm not a crazy person. This is real. And like, I was talking to one of my friends who's a trainer and she's like, yeah, I don't really have any changes. And I'm like, well, this is what I experienced right before my period starts. And I just can't, I lift like a toddler. I feel really good. I have really great energy. And then I go to put the bar on my back and I'm like, what happened to me? Mm, And she goes, oh my gosh, I've always been that way. I just never realized that it was to my cycle. But now that you say it, and, and so it's not really changing anything other than letting you know, oh, this is actually kind of normal. And I'm not going to push myself or torture myself or injure myself. I'm going to listen to my body. So it's not necessarily changing it so much as being like, aha, okay, this makes sense. Yeah. It's that old saying like knowing is uh, half the battle or maybe more than half the battle. It is very important. And and I think what the, the end result there is learn the language of metabolism. That is the most important thing that you can do. Learn to know what the metabolism is saying to you. It is speaking to you. So, you know, before you might have been like, oh, it's just annoying that I have a menstrual cycle, right? Or it's annoying for a guy that he doesn't, he doesn't have his erections are, you know, his libido and his erections aren't good. But if you look at it through the lens of what my metabolism is trying to tell me, 
that gives you a whole new direction to go, right? It's like, well, what, what is that about? You know, and this will just give you a little bit more background on this. The reason I mention this all the time is because this is the reality of a stressed physiology. The primary directive of your metabolism is to live long enough to reproduce from an evolutionary standpoint. That, that's really what it's about. And so it looks out and goes, how much stress is in the environment? And do I want to do that? And that's why women are a little bit more sensitive to this. So uh, all of that stuff matters. And by the way, with women, uh, libido is a big one, right? Because, you know, men are looking out there. Just This is just from an evolutionary perspective, okay? Uh, so I hope this doesn't offend anyone. It's just evolutionary. But men, from an evolutionary perspective, are going, you know, who can I have sex with, basically, right? This is just the straight, you know, sort of physiology of reproduction. Women are like, who would make a good baby with me? Good genes, basically, right? So from that perspective, then, then they go, okay, how stressful is it in the environment? If I have to run away from a tiger, I'm not going to be thinking about sex and, re and reproduction. Uh, a woman who's got low fuel reserves is not going to be thinking about that, who's emotionally, um, you know, uh, having emotional stress is not going to think about that, who's putting out too much energy is not going to think about that. And you can directly see uh, female libido, male libido pretty much stays static through the month. Female libido has two peaks oftentimes, one right around ovulation, which makes sense, right? Because it's like, I have an egg that is ready to be fertilized. Testosterone peaks around that time. So if you, you don't, you're not seeing that peak, that's an indication that maybe your body is stressed out enough to not want to care about reproduction. The other time it potentially peaks is right around menses for different reasons. Estrogen and progesterone fall away and it's sort of like an unmasking of testosterone. And so then oftentimes women will have an increased libido there as well. Whereas men would have just a general fall in libido. But we don't talk about these things because they're kind of taboo, like people don't want to talk about sex, but that is a big piece of metabolism. And by the way, here's the way I would look at this if you want to see the trajectory. If you're like, well, Jade, how would it go for me? Normally, it's going to go like this. If you push your metabolism too far, hunger and cravings and energy are going to come first. So that's heck, hunger, energy and cravings. Next, you're going to see sleep and mood start to have an issue. As you push further on your metabolism, you're going to get, begin to see menstrual irregularities and libido uh, changes in women. And here's another thing just for the younger women to understand, because this always comes up. Uh, each woman, what I've noticed is the metabolism is looking and saying, how much body fat do I have on my body? Uh, and if you're going to bring a, a baby to term, you, you need to have fat on your body to help because you're going to essentially be feeding uh, sort of two people. This is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, females have a higher body fat percent on average uh, than, than men do. Now, what ends up happening is what I've seen is that women can lose their menses and start having libido issues at different times. Some women can get into the mid teens, 16, 15% body fat and not see any changes in menses. Other women start if they're in the low 20s, can begin to see it. And this is another frustrating point here in an individualized aspect. And the way I've internalized this is that one woman's metabolism goes, no, I want 20% body fat. You know, that's what I want. That's what I feel good to help me reproduce and stay, um, you know, sort of uh, healthy and fit and, and without stress. Other women can go much lower. Now, this opens up a whole can of worms now, right? Because again, it goes to this whole point the metabolism doesn't care about the cultural aesthetic and your timelines and convenience. And this is where sort of genetics uh, come in. And this is also a, a, the reason I brought it up because it also becomes a major source of stress 
um, when we men and women do this, but women seem to, and maybe it's just because I work mainly with women, seem to be a little bit more prone to this, where they compare themselves to the body fat percent or the look of a fellow woman. It's really interesting when you look at research, even in attraction and romance research, men walk into a room and they look at women and go, oh, I hope she notices me or I'm noticing her. It seems like women don't necessarily do that with men. They look around and go, who's my competition? What is the other women doing? Whereas men don't go in and go, what, where are the other men? They go, where are the women? And women walk in and go, where are the women? So I think that's why um, women also are a little bit hard on themselves when they compare. It's a little bit, uh, you know, hard with them. And that's a form of stress, right? That's another form of stress that women, I, I think, are not necessarily aware of. So there's a lot that goes into this around the mindset arena as well, which is why any good coach is dealing with that. And a lot of their clientele may not understand why self-development and, you know, mindset issues come into the conversation, um, but, they, but they will. So that's just an aside, but it's also something I do see if we're going to be complete with a discussion about, you know, some of the what I think are uh, interesting and perhaps unique aspects of, of being, you know, the female metabolism. That's, again, another one of them. Measuring your libido, understanding that that is directly correlated with the health of your metabolism and also understanding that your metabolism is different than every other woman and has a body fat percent that it probably likes. And it is going to be unique uh, to you and that there's different shapes, you know, sort of in sizes. And one thing that I think is a really cool line of research as far as that goes is the hourglass shape for women. Uh, estrogen and progesterone create this nice belly uh, slimming effect. And they also can ex accentuate the breast and the, the hips and the butts. And this creates a, an hourglass shape. Now, what's interesting about this is women are evaluating women oftentimes more than they evaluate the shape of men. So women prefer on themselves the hourglass shape. And they also find other women who have that hourglass shape most attractive. And men do as well. But what's really beautiful about this is the size doesn't matter. When instead of looking at how big you are, if you have a plus size model or, or a very thin model, part of the reason that there are models in the first place is because regardless of your size, the hourglass shape is actually uh, the reproductive measure and the health measure uh, that women should be looking at versus just the scale weight. It really should be, is my waist and, uh, and uh, waist to chest ratio, waist to breast ratio and waist to hip ratio uh, in the hourglass range. And basically what that means is they should be roughly equal, ideally. Like if you look at, um, and I don't know if you're interested in this, but this is like a romantic attraction research and stuff like that. Yeah. If you look at, um, uh, what they'll do is they'll take women into a room and they'll have them look at a silhouette of a woman and they'll have men do the same thing. And they'll say, rank the attractiveness. And they'll actually use actual models and things like that, like playboy playmate models or other types of models to, for the silhouettes. And you'll see women routinely can pick out very quickly hourglass shapes. And so can men. And the only reason I bring that up is because to take some of the stress off of you, it'd be far better for most women to be measuring circumference measures around their waist rather than weight on the scale and also getting very comfortable with trying to optimize their individual hourglass shape because they will, based on this line of research, they will be happier in their skin. And they will also understand, hopefully the whole point of having this discussion is that you're going to be a different shape hourglass. Some hourglasses are a little bit more broad and short. Some are a little bit more tall and big. Some are a little bit more tall and thin. The idea though is that is the best uh, measure 
of a body comp uh, for a woman is like really trying to achieve the ideal body shape or uh, body shape for the woman. By the way, for men, it's the V shape. And women will notice that on men. Men notice it on themselves and other men. Um, but men are mostly evaluating them, themselves and women and women are mostly evaluating themselves related to other women. Oh, it's a joke. Women who are aware of it, you get ready to go out for the night and you're like, oh, I got ready for my girlfriends, not you, honey. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing all this makeup for my girlfriends. Yeah. Well, the and, research, the research tells us that that's the case. And it's just an yeah. interesting dynamic, something else to be aware of it, being a woman. Yeah, for sure. And we know too, from a health standpoint, that your waist circumference, it's not necessarily how much fat you have on your body. It's where you're holding it. And yes. I'm so genetically blessed that all of mine goes right to my gut. Yeah. None of mine goes to my boobs or my butt. I'm shaped like my dad, not my mom and my sister. And so yeah. I'm always like, I can be so little everywhere else. And I'm like, here's all this cardiovascular fat just hanging yeah. out in my belly. Um, well, you know, it's, there's another interesting line of research with that, that, uh, that basically looked at women who are thin with uh, bigger waist to uh, hip ratios. And so that's hard to imagine, but imagine a thin woman who stores most of her weight in her middle. It's me. And these women, yeah. So these women are, have been shown in research when they stress them out, they make them take math tests or, you know, different things in the lab. And then they measure cortisol responses. These women tend to be uh, more uh, cortisol reactive, actually. Mm -hmm. So it tells you again, this is another thing that tells you how impactful stress is uh, on um, women. And also a lot of these, there's a whole other line of research as well, but a lot of adverse childhood events, uh, traumas in childhood and things like that can lead to a hypothalamus pituitary axis that is a little bit more stress uh, reactive. And so again, this speaks to the idea that this isn't just about diet and exercise. It's also about self-development. It's also about mindset and mindfulness. There's different ways that we can uh, approach this. And so for some people, it really is dealing with some of those seed stories, psychological seed stories about, you know, worthiness and things like that, that really are at the root of some of the weight uh, issues as well. This is true for men as well, but at least we have an elegant study in women that actually shows the, the stress hormone effect on uh, the middle. And one other thing I'll say there is that testosterone in women is more than more like a stress hormone. So actually what you see in men is chronic stress in men or stress in men tends to raise testosterone and the waist tends to get thinner. Uh, women, uh, cortisol and testosterone uh, sort of antagonize estrogen and progesterone. And so that's one of the reasons why women have slimmer waists than men, partly because of the testosterone estrogen effect. So what you really want to is estrogen and progesterone are really, really important for uh, abdominal uh, thinness in a woman. Testosterone tends to thicken the waist in women. You can even see this in CrossFit athletes, actually yeah. women who, who do a lot of uh, testosterone dominated activity um, or women who are taking uh, anabolic steroids. You'll see these shifts in physiology, which does tell us how uh, impactful hormones are for, for women. It's all so fascinating. And I won't mm -hmm. belabor the point because I know you have to go. Um, but to, to highlight what you said about like the whole childhood trauma and stuff, ladies, I can't tell you how important it is to do your mindset work. You, you guys, I talk about it all the time. It sounds cliche, but I've had several women come through my program and we get everything dialed in mm -hmm. and the weight's not moving and they will get on a one-on-one -on -one call with me and just purge something extremely emotional 
these guilt and shame type of situations, mm-hmm. nothing else changes. Swear to God, boom, scale starts flying. Yeah. I ain't got no science for it. I'm just telling you it's I've real. Seen it. I've seen it over and over again as well. And there is science now for it. It, it has to do with this stress mechanism. It's sure. so, so impactful. Mm-hmm. So I will not hold you hostage any longer, but this has been so, so amazing. Uh, so many golden nuggets in this. And so I know that the, the ladies are going to love this when this launches next week. So thank Nikki, you so, so, so much for doing this. My and pleasure, where friend. can everybody follow you and get your book? And I can put it uh-huh. in the show notes too. Yeah. So at Tita on all the social media, um, J-A-D-E-T-E-T-A. Jadetita.com is my website. My podcast is Next Level Human. And the new book is Next Level Metabolism. And so, um, yeah, Nikki showed that one. And just, you know, just know that's it is deep science. It very much goes in line with everything we talked about here. So this conversation did interest you. That book is going to go way, way, way in depth. And then, of course, Nikki can probably help you decipher some of the more confusing aspects of it. But you're wonderful, my friend. Thank you for having me. And yes, thank you so I much. I appreciate it. Yep, have a good one. Oh my gosh, I hope that you ladies loved that conversation as much as I did. And if your head is spinning, if you're like, okay, this is amazing. This is totally the type of results that I want. I want to be listening to my body. I want a plan that fits my life, that doesn't overstress my system so I can keep the weight off. But this seems a little overwhelming then here's what you can do, boo. You can head over to my website, which is Nikki O'Day, N-I-K-K-I-O-D-E-A.com backslash keep it off. And there is a short video, if you scroll down that page just a little while, um, that explains how I coach women using a lot of these methods to take weight off in a sustainable way, keep it off, love your plan, not feel like you're dieting. And I don't talk a whole lot about my coaching program on this podcast specifically, um, but it's very fitting for the conversation that was just had. This is what I love helping women do. And so head on over there, check it out if you think that you need some help with this. If you like what you see in that video, it will walk you through the process of applying for coaching. We can just have a conversation, see if it would be a good fit. If I'm not the right coach for you, I can maybe point you in the right direction of somebody who is because a lot of times we need somebody outside of ourself to help us through this process, even when it's stuff that we understand. A lot of coaches have coaches so that they can have like an outside perspective and somebody guiding them through this process. So if you're tired of messing around with cookie cutter diets, head on over to that page, check that out, and I will catch you on next week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. It is my mission to give women back the confidence that they need to show up bigger in their lives. Right now, the world more than ever needs women who are on fire and living their purpose. If you want to join me in this mission, there's a few things you can do. One, you can share this podcast with the women in your circle. Two, you can join me in my Facebook group, Simplified Fat Loss, or you can subscribe to my newsletter at NikkiOday.com. 